0: Prepare our hearts, O God, to hear your word and obey your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our first scripture reading is from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Our epistle reading comes from the book of James, chapter 3, uh, verses 13 through chapter 4, verse 8. Who is wise in understanding among you? By his good conduct, conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. This morning is week four of five weeks that the lectionary spends in the book of James. And this drives a lot of preachers crazy because James is five chapters of basically saying the same thing in many different ways, but I actually really like James because it it builds on this theme and it, it gathers steam as you go on. So we'll be in James again next week, brothers and sisters, just as we are this week and just as we were a couple of weeks ago. Um, and so I'd like to begin this morning with a few quotes from the great reformer Martin Luther regarding the book of James. This is from Luther's works. Therefore, St. James's epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to these others, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. He really liked James. (laughs) The epistle of James gives us much trouble for the papists embrace it alone and leave out all the rest. Accordingly, if they will not admit my interpretations, then I shall make rubble also of it. I almost feel like throwing Jimmy into the stove as the priest in Kallenberg did. <laughs> Luther did not know how to filter. We should throw the epistle of James out of this school, uh, referring to Wittenberg, for it doesn't amount to much. It contains not a syllable about Christ. Not once does it mention Christ except at the beginning. I maintain that some Jew wrote it who probably heard about Christian people but never encountered any. Since he heard that Christians place great weight on faith in Christ, he thought, wait a moment, I'll oppose them and urge works alone. This he did. Martin Luther changed the church forever. There is no historical doubt about that. He was also not a man to mince words, also no doubt about that. He quite plainly spoke exactly what was on his mind, for better or for worse. And Luther is even more entertaining if you are able to read it in the German, because the English translators often try to soften the blow a little bit of what he's actually saying. Um, and in case you missed it, Luther was not a fan of the book of James. In fact, he strongly advocated for uh, throwing it out of the canon of scripture. Now, to be fair to Martin Luther, he was reacting to some serious shenanigans that were happening in the church at the time. At that time, the church had very little to do on the whole with faith or grace or love. For the pre-Reformation church at that time, right before Luther came um, into his ministry, Christianity was primarily about doing the right things, saying the right things, paying the right dues, literally, to get into heaven. So when he read passages like the one I just read, all he saw was a passage about using our own power to resist sin. And he had enough of that. He wanted the church to remember that God is gracious and loving and that Christian life isn't just about following a set of rules, And we can't behave our way into heaven. That much is certainly true. Luther vastly preferred the writings of the Apostle Paul over the epistle of James. But not even Paul lets us off the hook with bad behavior just because we're faithful. Faith and action go hand in hand. There's a pendulum that can start swinging here if we're not Careful! It hits faith only on one end and works only on the other. But the truth is that we cannot separate the two. They are too intricately tied together. They are both required in the Christian life. Both the way we live and the way we believe are part of who we are, part of the Christian identity. We are indeed saved by the grace of God and the grace of God alone and never by what we do. But we cannot trust claims of faith that aren't backed up by actions of grace and love that reflect that faith. We're kind of like an egg. For today's purposes, we'll say we're all good eggs. Once you start separating the pieces, it's not really a whole egg Anymore, We're a totally different ingredient, right? When the recipe calls for an egg, you have to use an egg. You can't use just the white or just the yolk. Baking is something you have to be thoughtful and purposeful about. Um, there are some recipes that call for just the white or just the yolk, but most recipes that use egg call for the whole thing. And when your recipe calls for a whole egg, you'd better get the whole egg in there or you're going to have to make a lot of other adjustments and the final result is not going to be quite the same. Luther was reminding the church that they needed to be the yolk too. But in doing so he seemed to forget that this recipe calls for the whole egg, not just the yolk. And this is where my analogy starts to fall apart even further because if we start thinking about the Bible as a recipe book, we're falling into the same trap that Martin Luther was trying to pull the church out of. But my point is that we can't behave our way into heaven and we can't get, we can't connect empty faith with no action connected to it. But when the two partner together, mighty things happen. That's when sin gets pushed out, when evil cowers and hides. We become who we were meant to be fully, the whole egg. Somehow it seems like it's easier for us to live at one end of the spectrum or the other. We either want to bake with the whites or the yolk, but not the whole egg. We want to rely on faith that isn't necessarily backed up by any sort of change in our life whatsoever, or we want to rely on behaving our way into heaven and doing the right thing to earn our spot. We want to cling to passages like Psalm 1 and pretty much the whole book of James and worry about if we're submitting enough, acting holy enough, behaving enough, doing the right things enough, or... We want to say that my actions don't really matter because it's all about how much faith I have. But we can't have it one way or the other. We're saved by grace, not our actions, but the truly faithful look and act different from the rest of the world. Sometimes we get so caught up in worrying about who's following the rules and telling them all about this, how sin will get them in trouble, and we forget that we're all in this together. Or we get so caught up in the way we're acting that we convince ourselves that God can never possibly be gracious enough to save someone like us, or that we're buying or earning our way into heaven. And neither is a helpful path to go down. Neither one of them are all they're cracked up to be. But we aren't told about sin in scripture so that we can rush out and tell everyone that they're bad eggs. We're told about it so that we can grow in our own understanding and faith. We aren't told about it as a guilt trip, but as a mirror in which we can see how our faith is meant to look. Believe it or not, my sermon was done by the time we met for Bible study Wednesday night. And in one of the small groups, the use of the word that is usually translated the devil or Satan came up. In James, the Greek word translated devil in this passage really means adversary. It's not meant to be a proper name. There are some places in the Bible where it could be argued that the word is maybe being used as a name, but this is not one of those places. James doesn't mean to make the adversary, the devil, a character here, like the king of hell devil with a pitchfork that we're going to start seeing in all the stores soon for Halloween, but he's talking about evil in general, sin brokenness he means the adversary that stands in the way of our living out the faith i don't point that out just to stir the pot or start an argument about greek translations of the word that uh, means adversary Uh, but to note that it's ironic that the adversary standing in the way for many of us this devil is really for all of us at some time or another the sin of judging others or judging ourselves to the point of ignoring matters of spirit and faith, taking this passage too far in an unhealthy direction. For many, the path of least resistance is to put all their stock in the idea that they'll never be able to change enough or that change is too hard, so faith will get them through. For others, the path of least resistance is keeping a tally of behavior so as to avoid dealing with the deeper issues of the heart that God wishes to heal. Either way, we're avoiding half of the egg. You could say we're a bit half-baked. And taking the path that seems easier now is not the easier way in the long run. It only delays the inevitable day when God will turn the heat up. Psalm 1 says that the easier path The way of the wicked, it's called in the Psalms, leads to destruction in the long run. But the path that requires a change of heart and a turn to genuine faith in the grace that saves us, the path that means we have to consider what our actions say about our hearts, that path leads us ultimately to abundant life with God. C.S. Lewis says, Teachers will tell you that the laziest boy in the class is the one who works the hardest in the end. They mean this, if you give two boys, say, a proposition in geometry to do, the one who is prepared to take trouble will try to understand it. The lazy boy will just learn it by heart because for the moment, that needs less effort. But six months later, when they are preparing for the exam, that lazy boy is doing hours and hours of miserable drudgery over things that the other boy understands and positively enjoys in a few minutes. Laziness means more work in the long run. Lewis tells us that the path of least resistance leads to drama and hardship later on, but the one that seems more difficult in the moment is the one that will prepare you to rise to the occasion later on. Just this morning, I read an article in the Washington Post about how most people who say they don't go to the gym because they're too tired or too busy or any other regular excuse are just avoiding it because our brains are conditioned to choose the easy way of doing life. It says that the brain has an automatic attraction to sedentary behaviors. This goes way back to when the earth was a much harder place to live in for humans, and we had to conserve energy in order to survive. But now we've streamlined life so much with cars and elevators and grocery stores and the like, that we are already conserving more than enough energy to survive on and this deep down programmed in desire to conserve energy to take the easier path is actually bad for us. I have copies of that article in the back if anyone's interested in reading it. It's not easy to be a whole egg. It's not easy to live in the bottom of the pendulum swing between relying on empty faith and relying on our own willpower But when you take the faith out of the works, they're just empty deeds. They have no meaning, and the results will be disappointing. When you take the action out of the faith, well, it probably wasn't very strong faith to begin with, and it's going to come back to bite you in the end. I fear that that's what much of the modern church's current public relations problem is a result of. All talk about faith and not enough backing it up with tangible changes to how we go about our daily lives. The good news is that in the end, God is gracious. God shows favor to the humble. God watches over the paths of righteous people, the humble people, even when they veer off a little, the ones who are on that harder path. And God makes them fruitful. So perhaps the best thing we can do is to simply remember that it takes a whole egg. Luther was right. We are saved by grace. Praise Jesus. But James was also right. The way we live out our faith in God's grace says a great deal about the real state of our heart, the actual strength of our faith. Faith doesn't just keep saying, I'm blessed in the midst of adversity. Faith blesses others in the midst of adversity, even its own. And while that can be hard to deal with, it's not pretty to deal with our own sin and baggage. In the long run, it's like the boy who studies hard all school year and breezes Through the finals because he's taken the harder path in the short term friends remember this faith is given to us by the grace of god and that faith is evident through our actions the actions and faith are so a part of one another that we can't really separate them the things we do matter even though they don't save us god's grace is what saves us but claims of faith that aren't lived out are hollow So submit to God, not just in what you do, but in who you are and what's in your heart. Submit everything, mind, body, soul, action, heart, to God. Because God doesn't ask for just one piece. God asks for our whole being. Amen.